0: Hello and welcome or welcome back to Not Your Token Minority. I hope you have had a great start to the new year. I have had the past two weeks off to enjoy the holiday period so that I can come back refreshed and ready for 2022. While I'm busy preparing new content, I'll be republishing some of last year's top episodes, starting with the one that kicked it all off, my interview with my friend Sheila about growing up in New Zealand, the journey she's been on as a business owner, and facing the grief of losing her mum to cancer. Take a listen if you haven't done so already. Welcome to your interview, Sheila. Hi. You know, we've known each other for... Since high school. Yeah, since high school. You so, were basically
1: my first friend
0: at Pickeringa. Oh, so cute. <laughs> yeah, when you moved up to Auckland from the Hawke's Bay, right? Yes, which so, was a big
1: deal because there were barely any Asians down in Hawke's Bay. So when I came up to Auckland, I was like, oh my God, my people. Yeah, <laughs> exactly.
0: and yeah, we will get into that. But I want to sort of go back to where you came from. So you actually took a trip down to the Hawke's Bay over New Year's. Yes. Was that, how long had it been since
1: you? So yeah, it honestly took me back to so many memories. Our family moved to Hawke's Bay when I was three years old. So three of us girls, and then they had three more. So six girls raised there. And then we left when I was about 15 to come to, uh, yeah, Packeringa College in Auckland. What was
0: it like for you growing up in the Hawke's Bay? I imagine back then, especially, there wouldn't have been any or very few Asian families
1: Mm. there. Yeah, there were no Asian families. We were the token Asians. (laughs) I swear, we owned the restaurant, you know, the local takeaway. The only Chinese takeaway. Yes, and we were family business, and we all worked with our uncles, our cousins, and we did that after school. So it was kind of like a bit embarrassing serving your classmates, and while they're having a life and playing and sports and all that stuff, and you're there just serving fish and chips, or that's, it's very humbling we dressed differently. We could tell that we had different haircuts, you know, because we were so poor. So we had to share everything. All my sisters shared our clothing. You know, we couldn't afford meat in our sandwiches. We couldn't afford little individual pack chips. So Mum just bought a whole bunch and like threw some in a lunchbox for you. And they just really tried to blend in as much as possible, but it's just such a different environment. Now I look back, how did they manage not knowing the language the customs the culture and just trying to like raise their kids and survive
0: what was it like for you and your sisters going to school and growing up in that environment in terms of not having other kids around you who mm. were like you who looked like you mm. did you experience much discrimination or sort of misunderstandings or teasings from other children I probably
1: block out a lot of my childhood, (laughs) but now that I think about it, yes, we were so different and we always tried to stay small. I remember always wanting to fit in and not being just highlighted. I didn't want to be approached or asked any questions because I just felt like I just want to be like everybody else. But yeah, luckily I have my two sisters because we were able to, you know, share things together. So it wasn't like you experienced a lot of name calling? Oh, yes, I did. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I remember walking home and they would tease you and, you know, say the usual ching chong and all that stuff. So creative. Yes. But back then it was so embarrassing and like shameful and I would cross the road just to get away from these people. But now you look back and it's like, I wish I had the balls to actually defend myself and actually speak up. But you're like just so shy Um, yeah and again your parents don't teach you to stand up for yourself and actually use your voice how do you think that affected your relationship with your own culture and identity at that time I think because we had such a big family you know we always hung out together our four uncles we had four to six kids each so all of us hung out in a herd and we always stood out. You knew we were the Asians. (laughs) Going to McDonald's is a big, like, party. So I didn't feel embarrassed when we were all together. I think it's when you're more isolated that you feel a lot more lonely. How it shaped me, I guess, yeah, I'm just so proud of that heritage now. Like, I look, and I'm like, we're different, but that's what makes us amazing. You know, we have culture, we have the traditions, all that stuff that I'm sorry, not everyone has. They're quite basic. Um. Your favorite phrase. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, I think just going back and thinking about it, it definitely makes you appreciate what you have and everything that your parents taught you, like working hard, survival, saving. But at the same time, it's also made me rebel against a lot of those things to be like, yes, that is great, but at the same time, we're also not in China anymore. And that's something I've struggled with, like teaching my parents to not have that mentality of being in scarcity and feeling like you're still in China.
0: How did your family come to New Zealand and end up in the Hawks Bay?
1: Yeah, so obviously my dad comes from a very big family. There's seven boys and one girl, and they couldn't afford – For everyone to come over so they put all their money together and got my youngest uncle to come and so he came first he kind of set up working in orchards in Hawke's Bay I guess that was the place they found you know a small town affordable so he came and then he saved up up enough money and he bought my dad over and then another brother and then all the children came along. When was that? It was 30 years ago we shared one house there was four adults seven kids in a four bedroom house and so now i look back at how much space people have and you know you can survive off very little so we sacrifice and i just realized they make use of everything like they would pick watercress from the rivers and creeks and because it's free and then they would sell it at the flea markets they'd pick up fruit from the ground and again sell it. So that's kind of how we really started in Hawke's Bay. And it was the best thing for us.
0: So you moved up to Auckland then. What was that like for you? Like, do you remember the day when you got the news that everyone was moving up to Auckland and how did you feel?
1: It was just a decision. My dad said, like, it's better for your education. And I was like, yeah, I'm ready for change, something bigger. I guess I knew I was Destined for bigger things. You know, I didn't want to stay in the same takeaways, that lifestyle. My parents went up, set up a house, and that's kind of how it started. And I remember going to Packeranga College, and it wasn't the best time, to be honest, to be starting because everyone already had their friends groups. And I must say, like, everyone was quite snobby. And so me and my sisters hung out at lunchtime and now i think back like imagine if i didn't have my sister there it would be a lot more lonely
0: going back to your takeaway experiences mm-hmm. cuz i remember almost every time we'd ask you to like hang out on the weekend or whatever you'd be like sorry i'm at the shop like obviously you learned a lot from those experiences working at the shop but what was it like for you at the time would you say that you have actually taken more away from it
1: than not. Absolutely. Now, obviously, I think it was the best thing for us. At the time, I hated it. Honestly, it was so draining. We didn't have a life. We always had to roster around working at the shop. But as my mother has passed two years ago now, we got to spend so much time with our parents. And that's something I value so much more. Then, you know, if we didn't have that shop, we wouldn't have that connection and being able to help our parents and, yeah, see them every day. And just that bond we created is something you'll never get back. Do you think that it was through
0: working at the takeaway shop that you started to develop some of your work
1: ethic and your approach to work that you have now? Yes. For me, it's like work like it's your own. Um, I've always gone into work like this is part of me. I'm not just here to make a paycheck. You know, if you see things that need improving, you freaking implement it. You go the extra mile. You do things with a smile and like good energy. No matter what, no matter if it's working at a fish and chip shop. I've had so many jobs. Every job is a learning. I was a dishwasher, but I freaking loved every part of it because it teaches you something along the way you take the skills with you for every job
0: I think especially a lot of people who meet you now they only know super motivated passionate Sheila yeah you know really onto it super successful got a million and a half projects going on all over the place I want to go back to like the Sheila before that because I don't ever remember you like that
1: 100% when you were at school. Yes, this is so true. I was not always this motivated, far from it. I remember in high school being really just coasting through life, not really having a big, clear goal or vision. All I knew is I had to graduate, you know? I was like, that's the next step. Um, And in high school, I played dumb a lot. That was something that it was easy to do, be a bit silly, you know, ask lots of questions, even though, yeah, I just really didn't try, because to be honest, I wasn't that smart amongst the rest of the Asians, so I wasn't going to try and be that, (laughs) Um, and I really had to find myself, and being social was probably my thing, so then I went to university, and I did a spatial design degree, and to be honest, like, I only did it because... All my sisters were doing other things. And I was like, we all have to have a different path. You know, we don't all want to be the same in finance, fashion. So I was like, okay, I'll do the interior design thing. And then I got into drinking a lot, which is crazy because people don't see me drink anymore. So we went through the drinking phase. We went through the clubbing phase. Failing at university, I was so not motivated. I would sleep in, do no exercise, and then... Yeah, I went through my first breakup. <laughs> yes, so that really put me into a depression. But the question was, what was my goal? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it was literally just to survive. Okay.
0: Um, did you, when you went to university, did you actually want to go to university, or is, or is that something that you did because you felt like, oh, you know, that's the next step,
1: or that was definitely because it's the next step. You know, I have no joy in. Going to school, and I'm not the academic. I'm very creative, and I loved making things. I remember my degree; I made actually desks and furniture, which ultimately is my career. For me, I had very little goals and dreams. It was basically to graduate, get a job and survive and probably get married and have kids. That was it. I was like, tick all the boxes. I've done my bit as a child, as a daughter. Yay. Let's
0: talk a bit about that. So between finishing high school to now, can you run me through some, I guess, experiences that you've had, which you think have been quite fundamental and life-changing for you to bring you to the Sheila that we know
1: today? So yes, the first thing was my first relationship with a Muslim man. So that took me about two to three years to recover from because I lost my whole identity. But that's what forced me to make it plan for myself. I was like, oh my God, Sheila, you were supposed to get married and have babies with this man. Now you don't have that. And I made a promise to myself never to depend on a man, which I've taken a little bit too far <laughs> because I haven't depended on a man for the last 10 years. Like ever since that relationship. Yeah, ever since I'm a little bit too focused.
0: <laughs> so can I ask you, you mentioned you described him as a Muslim man. Did his
1: religion really come into play? In- Absolutely. Absolutely. Everything was about the religion um, and all the rules. You know, you can't eat meat, you can't drink, all the things that I just was, like, questioning every decision I made. I can't wear this. Um, So then I started, I stopped thinking for myself. It wasn't, what does Sheila want to do today? It was literally like, what does this man want me to do? That was a pivotal moment, obviously getting through that and then finding my business partner, um, taking on Smart Space. There's been so many ups and downs, which is another whole story.
0: Yes, we'll get to that.
1: Um, Yeah. So all the people involved in the business, not feeling good enough as a businesswoman um, and always having to prove myself. And then I opened a cafe, which was an epic fail. Stay Um, tuned for that episode, (laughs)
0: because I have so many questions, but way too many for this episode, so we're going to save that for another time.
1: Yes, so the failed cafe, and then obviously my mother was diagnosed with stage 4 pancreatic cancer, and that again was the biggest shock, and it, yeah, she passed away I I think 4 to 6 months after she was diagnosed, so it was a very extensive time. Then the whole grieving process, and then I did a lot of therapy. I'd done a lot of workshops to work through some past traumas and emotions. And yeah, I think that's the gist of the Mm. biggest things that have shaped me. Do you mind if I ask you some
0: questions about the experience of your mother being diagnosed? Did you think much before then Mm. about your parents dying? Never. 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 Never
1: in my wildest dreams. I've always thought my mum so healthy. She was so youthful, like her soul was youthful and energetic, and she was so positive. So for me, you know, my father's been through depression. So I thought maybe his health was the one lacking. So when she was diagnosed, you know, I was in a funk of working so much, always about work, work, work. I never had time for my family. I never made time for my parents because I always thought they're always there. And I remember dad called us crying and was saying, something's wrong with your mother. Like she's lost so much weight. And we're like, dad, stop being dramatic. And I just think how horribly we didn't even take it seriously that her health was deteriorating in front of our eyes. And so we started doing all the work and then we found out over a phone call and they said it's not good. It's stage four and pancreatic is the worst. You don't have long. So then you go into a state of shock. And because there's so many of us, every day was just chaos. It was this information, this treatment, probably a little too much and a lot more overwhelming than we realized. But I think you're just scrambling because you have limited time. But yeah, I thought my parents were invincible. Again, that really just awakened me to what is important. Like I thought having the houses, the cars, the business, none of that shit matters. You can't take that to the grave. What was that
0: journey like for you actually coming to terms with your mother's mortality?
1: I think what I've realized about myself is I don't allow myself to feel And so it's this constant doing, you know, it's a masculine energy in me. Let's not feel anything. And because it was so painful, we cried our eyes out. I let it all out. And then it was like, okay, Sheila, it's time to like get on with life. And your mother wouldn't want you to be sad. So I poured that into work again. And that's my go-to. Let's not think about crying. Let's just go to the gym, (laughs) go to work. And everyone thought I was robotic. And to an extent, yes, I am. But that's the only way I could survive and cope with it. I don't feel like sitting here talking about how sad I am and, you know, does not help for me. I also connected spiritually by talking to her, seeing mediums and healers. And that's probably my way of processing it a lot more than my sister's. But yeah, it's been a lot dealing with our father as well. You know, we're not the only ones affected. So, Trying to comfort him and put him first is also, again, another priority that your emotions get lost along the way. And yeah, I've been through enough counseling and grief work to understand that I'm okay and at least she wasn't in pain for so long. So always seeing the positives. The amazing people that supported me during that time, like I'll never forget. Yeah, It's okay. And she does her best work now. I always like, mom, I need this and she'll make it happen. So I'm like, she actually sees more of my life now. Do do you think a lot has changed in your family
0: dynamic? And, you know, I know you guys have dinner every week. Mm, Well, yes, we try. Okay. You try to have dinner every week. Um, Do you think a lot has changed in terms of how you guys relate to each other and the time you spend with each other because of that experience?
1: Yes. And, you know, something, you know, and you'll be part of is we do an annual um, sisters retreat. So we celebrate my mum's death anniversary and we do a weekend away where we just really disconnect from the world and get in tune with ourselves and our feelings and bonding as sisters, which is something that we've lost along the way. And so it's really brought us together in that way. And we communicate a lot more. We tell each other, like, I love you, which is, it's hard to say. And we spend quality time. We try and do the best for my nieces and nephew and make sure that they're still connected to Pōpō by visiting her grave and talking about her. So all these things are so much more important. The memories, watching videos. Yeah, and I always remind them. Mother is within each of us, and so she sacrificed a lot. So I don't want you living a mediocre life. Don't be average. Don't, don't be basic. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> Like, yeah, and that's probably the biggest reminder for each of us. Going into your professional yes. journey now, so
0: you weren't always a business owner. Nope. You started at another commercial fit-out. Firm
1: first. Yep. I was basically like the admin reception, doing the most basic filing. Whew. (laughs) I learned a lot, to be honest, how not to be a boss. What I realized I mean, it was two male owners, and as amazing as their business and their brands are, just the way they treat people was not in line with how a boss should be. I worked like it was my own. I changed all the processes. Like I'm all about efficiency. So if I see problems, I'm going to fix it. And that's just the type of person I am. I like processes. I like structure. I, I did it all. There really was no permission. (laughs) I just did things. And I remember being very ballsy at that time in my life because I was like, this is the right way. And I would speak to anybody. I didn't really care who you were. So I think they knew I was different. I wasn't just going to sit there and wait to be told what to do. And I guess they gave me the freedom to do that, which I totally respect and appreciate about them now. Um, They gave me freedom. They gave me responsibilities. And then I was able to take over a brand and travel with this brand. And it was amazing. The job title, I got to travel, I, I made the money, all that. It looked amazing. But deep down, I was like, I don't want to work for terrible people. You know, this is my life that I'm going to invest into. So I I was going through my breakup during this time, so I would just work till 2am and, you know, all became about that. And I remember my business partner, James, he decided to start his own business and he asked our installers and he said, who should I get as my business partner? And they said, you need Sheila. And I was 25 years old at the time. You know, James didn't really know anything about me. And he said, no, I don't want her. She's too young inexperienced. She's not a salesperson. And they're like, she works hard. And so he met me, went for an interview. And I remember asking him, can I be part of the business? Can I be a shareholder? Because I'm not going to leave something unless I'm part of it. So he said, I'll take you on and we'll see how it goes. So then, yeah, we basically started. I resigned. And I remember being so scared because I'm giving up a, you know, a comfortable role. And I remember my boss saying, what are you doing with your life? And I'm crying because it's, yeah, it's confronting. And he's like, you're going to a nothing brand. Is it quite satisfying to take a, quote, nothing brand
0: to what it is now? Like you have some really big clients and I've seen some of the offices that you've worked on or workspaces. Mm. um, And they're amazing. Like,
1: It is top of the line, rewarding, Mm -hmm. and you know we did everything organically. It was step by step. It wasn't trying to be this big thing. It never was. So for me, every job is like I'm so passionate about it. It doesn't matter if it's one desk, it's that home office. I love what I do, and I give the best advice. And this is what I think you should do. So yeah, so proud and I never in my wildest dreams imagined it would be where it is today in eight to nine short years. And it's so rewarding to know that good people can create good businesses. You don't have to be an asshole to get there.
0: (laughs) (laughs) How then does it feel to be one of the only young Asian female leaders in your industry? Because I don't imagine there to be that
1: any? No. It feels amazing. Like I used to see it as a weakness and then someone was like, "You're different, like you stand out in a room." So I would always feel like I wasn't good enough to be in a room. I'd sit in these boards with old white men and never really have a place to say anything and I just sit there and I listen because I always know that if you've got something to say, make sure it's important. So I'm good at listening and observing the room. And that's what I've learned. You don't need to be loud and be the center of attention all the time. But also, it's taken me a long time to feel like I fit into this industry because I don't do things like everybody else. I don't like networking. I don't like drinking, you know. And so that's a very big part of the industry. But what I can bring is being personable, taking people to lunches and actually getting to know them before you build that relationship and for me that's worked and it's more authentic and soft and gentle which I think the industry needs it's refreshing to be something different you know for COVID I sent people like cupcakes and cookies cute but yeah those are the touches I think that makes you stand out so what kind of example then are you
0: looking to set not just for your team but you know for all the women who you want to inspire
1: For me, it's like you are enough and stop having all these limiting beliefs and saying I can't do this because of my age. All the shit that we tell ourselves we're not good enough. I'm not ready for that. If I had waited until I was ready to start this, I would have lost that opportunity. And that's what James said. He's like, take it now or leave it. And so I had to jump. And so sometimes you just have to do it. You have to have trust in yourself, surround yourself with an amazing team of people. That's the biggest thing I've also learned. Skills can be taught. Attitude is everything. If they want to work hard, if they have positive mindsets, they really want to do good, that is going to create this abundance of wealth and good energy and good business. Awesome. So
0: you have got so many exciting things planned for the year and beyond, and I'm really looking forward to being on that journey with you as well so yeah thank you so much
1: thank you Woo.
0: Woo. thank you for listening remember you can always reach out to me on instagram or facebook if you have any feedback or if you or someone you know would like to be a guest on this podcast just search for not your token minority podcast